if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. We are continuing the series that we started back in January, off and on, uh, through the book of Genesis. Now, last time, two weeks ago, we, we looked at the story where Abraham kind of almost sort of near miss, uh, almost sacrifices Isaac, his son, the son he loves, his only son, even though it's not really his only son, that Isaac. So after that, that's sort of like the last big thing that happens with Abraham. And then after that, so after the near miss of Abraham's almost sacrificing of Isaac, the narrative of Genesis really quickly begins to kind of shift away from Abraham and towards Isaac, even though Isaac is very briefly dealt with. In, in fact, there, there aren't many stories about Isaac compared to the other main characters in Genesis. In, in most of the narrative, Isaac is either framed in the context of being Abraham's son or the father of Jacob and Esau. There are almost no stories of Isaac just being Isaac, just doing Isaac. So, uh, in fact, th there's only one, really, and the, we, we already looked at it several weeks ago, or several months ago. Uh, it, it's the story where he, just like his dad who came before him, goes into a foreign land and tells the leader of the foreign land that his wife is his sister. Like, that's one of the only times Isaac, like, gets a story all to himself, and it's terrible. So... We kind of, so the narrative kind of leapfrogs over Isaac in a lot of ways. He's sort of a transitional character, in, again, in comparison to the rest of them. So because of that, there's not much to talk about in terms of Isaac, especially compared to Abraham, which we spent tons of time talking about Abraham. So what happens, though, is Abraham has Isaac. Isaac grows up, is not sacrificed, important. And then after Isaac is not sacrificed, he grows up. Abraham dies at the beginning of Genesis 25. And then not long after that, Isaac gets married and has kids of his own. And so that's where we're kind of moving towards now. That's where we're turning our attention towards mainly the story of Isaac's kids who are named Esau and Jacob. So in Genesis 25, that's where we're going to pick up. In verse 19, it says, This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padnaram and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled with each other or jostled each other within her and she said, "Why is this happening to me?" So she went to inquire to the Lord. So she's like pregnant with twins and the twins are like Obviously, there, there's some like symbolic, metaphorical kind of stuff happen, happening here. Like even before the twins are born, they're not getting along that great. So, and then in verse 23, it says, "The Lord said to her, the two, two nations are in your womb, and two people with, from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger." When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, which is that's that's a weird detail. Like if you're if you're giving your birth story, the if, if somebody asks you, like, well, tell me, about, tell me about when your kids were born. If the first detail you give is like, well, the first one was very red. That seems like not, not as sentimental as perhaps you were hoping. So anyway, it says, the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So not a cute baby. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And uh, again, obviously, there's, there's some symbolism going on here, like, um, a, like the second born grasping at the heel of, of the first born. Like there's, there's a lot going on there beyond just like, well, that's an odd thing to happen with newborns. Um, so then it says, um, it says, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. 
The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we've got two parents, and we've got two kids. And each of the parents has sort of naturally, more naturally bonded with each of the two different kids differently. So right out of the gate, what we're being told here is each parent has a favorite. And sort of the foreshadowing of, of all this is, and the parents are going to kind of pity pit the kids against each other, which always goes well. Nothing bad has ever happened when parents choose favorites and pit kids against each other. That always goes super great. So that's, that's what's happened just right out of the gate, like before Esau and Jacob even get a chance to do anything. So then in verse 29... It says, once Jacob was cooking some stew. So we went from them being newborn babies and Esau being red and hairy to them growing up. Now, all of a sudden, like in the very next verse, Jacob's cooking some stew. So he's, they, they've, we've, some time has passed. So it says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. So which, um, if you have footnotes, Edom just means red. So, like, Esau's got a fun nickname, Red. So, that is Esau. So, anyway, so the two things we know about Esau. He's hairy, and he's red, and he also likes other red things. So, he, now he has a nickname where he's just, he's red. So, then, where were we? So, th that's why he's called Edom. And, okay, so actually, let's, let's pause right there for a second. Now, the writer's doing something kind of interesting, and th this is sort of an aside, but the writer's doing something kind of interesting with traditional gender roles here. In most civilizations in, from the ancient Near East, in stories about their patriarchs, the expectation would be to frame, if you're, if you're telling stories about your key ancestors, like the, the ancestors that you are remembering and like you're telling like these giant, you know, origin stories about, which is what this is. Like Genesis is sort of a retelling from a people who are like, who... Uh, theoretically at least, setting up their patriarchs on a certain amount of pedestals. Like there, there's this expression that would continue to show up over and over and over again for generations, which is we are the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob being the third in that little saying, these are, these are the patriarchs. These are the people that they're setting up on a pedestal. But what's interesting here is historically, if you're going to retell stories about your patriarchs in the ancient Near East, one of the things that you're going to sort of usually in most societies, one of the things that they're, they're going to kind of elevate as, as a virtue is like masculinity, like the, the one that is, that is more hyper-masculine than the other. So in, in the stories about the patriarchs, in most societies, the expectation would be to frame your key ancestors as overly masculine or, or overtly masculine, I guess. Not, and so not only does the text not do this, it makes the less masculine brother the protagonist of the story. Not necessarily a hero. I would argue there are no heroes in this particular story. But Jacob is the one that we're kind of following along. Jacob is the point of view character in the story. Jacob is the, the patriarch that will go on to sort of be a, one of the fathers of, of the nation. So Jacob in the story is the less masculine of the two brothers. He's like, he very overtly doesn't like to go hunting. He doesn't do the things that his very hairy red masculine brother likes to do he's he's at home making some stew while esau's out doing what a lot of people would have assumed would have been like man's work so so it's interesting that the story kind of reframes not only is jacob the younger technically he's the younger of the two which makes him less in in the eyes of most societies at this time but he's also the less masculine of the two 
um, if, if this was Norse mythology slash Marvel Comics, Esau would be Thor and Jacob would be Loki. You see what I'm doing? See, like, so it's interesting that, that the narrator goes pretty far out of their way to frame Jacob in the less traditional masculine role. And yet Jacob is the one that we're supposed to kind of, in a, in a way, kind of be rooting for in the story. And he's certainly the more cunning of the two brothers. Esau is not, Esau is not drawn as like the sharpest tool in the shed necessarily. Anyway, that's an aside, but it's an interesting sort of recurring theme that we see as we go through the stories. So Esau comes in from the wilderness. He's famished. And there's a little bit of wordplay here that in English we don't see, but in Hebrew they would have seen it, which is, and the wordplay here is Esau comes in from the field and it says, in, in our translation, it says like, give me some of that red stew or get uh, the red stuff in some translations. But in the Hebrew, he's just saying, give me some of the red, the red. Now in the, um, it's in the Hebrew here, it's, oh shoot. Nope. Okay. That was supposed to be an A. Ha-adam. Okay, this is a word that just means the red. And so Esau comes in from the wilderness and he says, give me some of ha-adam, ha-adam. So he's emphatically saying, give me the red. And he's, he's talking about the lentil stew. He, like Jacob is making red stew. And the word for, so what's interesting though, is the word for humanity from earlier in Genesis is the word ha Adam. So in the original Hebrew, actually, there are no vowels. So the the different vowel sounds are made with like breath marks, or you, you would just be able to sort of subtly hear the difference to 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 a, a native Hebrew ear. You know what I'm saying? And so so to us, if I would and that's why I had to sort of write it out, because if I if I'd say, well he's saying ha adam and not ha adam, you'd be like, there's no difference in the two words you're saying. So we had to sort of show it here. So the word for humanity is ha-adam, and the word for just the red, the stew that he's referring to, is ha-adom. And, um, okay, so also, by the way, the Hebrew word for blood is the word, can we even see this? Is this too low? Is the word dom. So just without the adam. So we've got these three words that sound a lot alike. So we have ha-adam, which means red, ha-adam, which means humanity and then just dom which means blood now in the ancient world people believed that blood which is also red by the way science so uh in the ancient world people believed blood had some sort of mystical magical power that blood was the life force of human beings and that's a natural thing to believe right because like if if you lose too much blood then you are no longer alive to quote the good place People are made mostly of goo and juice, and if you take out most of the juice, they just die. So that was that was the um, I don't know science according to the Good Place, Ted Danson. Thanks so much. So anyway, so the belief was, well, if you lose too much of this red stuff coming out of your veins and you just die, then there must be like because science was limited at the time. So what they thought was like, oh, there, there's something mystical. There's something magical. There's something like powerful and life-giving that exists inside of blood. So the concept of blood had this very like big, like again, like sort of magical life force type of idea behind it. So 
in the, again, in the ancient world, this is what people believe. So we have these three words that are very similar to each other, all sort of at play here in the story. So Esau, is he, he's famished. He's craving life. He's craving something that will give him life. So to the ear, it sounds like, again, because these words sound very similar, to the ear, it sounds like he's asking for humanity. It sounds like he's asking for blood or the life force of humanity. But what he's actually asking for is the red stuff. He's actually just asking, he's reaching for a bowl of soup. And so let's, let's kind of keep going and maybe we can see like, why does this matter? What, like, what, why do these words matter as we read this story? So in Genesis, going back to Genesis 25, so he comes in and he asks for the red stuff. I want the red stuff. And then it says in verse 31, Jacob says what any good brother would say, which is first sell me your birthright, which is like, Hold, hold up here. It's a steep price for a bowl of soup. So he says, first, sell me your birthright. Verse 32, Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright or he disregarded it or like like basically he he saw it as having no further value to him he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup in the ancient near east birthright is everything it's it, the idea of birthright is it's carrying on carrying on the birthright was symbolic of everything not just that you were but that your family had been before you like the birthright is your core identity as someone who's part of a larger story also, by the way, birthright entitles you to the majority of the family inheritance, which seems like something you would want to hang on to just on a practical level. Because how inheritance worked in the ancient Near East was it wasn't like somebody, if, if the parent dies, then everybody gets together for like the reading of the will and everything is divided more or less evenly. That's not how it worked. How it worked in the ancient world was the oldest, the oldest son got like 80 to 90% of the inheritance and then all the other kids after got basically a portion of the 20 to 10% that was left over. And the idea was like, we don't want to split up our family, like our, our assets. It was basically a way of trying to hold the assets together as best they could. So the oldest son was entitled to get almost everything at the expense of the rest of the siblings. It was just sort of how it worked. So when, when Jacob is asking, or when Esau is saying that he's willing to give Jacob his birthright, he's not just saying like, I'll, you know, like, I'll let you, like, be the one who picks where we eat out on your birthday or whatever. It's, this is, this is so much bigger than that. This is, Jacob is, or Esau is saying, like, you can have all the inheritance. He's selling off, again, like, this very practical thing that you would think, like, nobody would really want to get rid of this. Um, also, just on, like, to show, like, there's so many dimensions to this. There's a spiritual dimension to this as well. Because if you are the bearer of the birthright of your family, you are, your job is to carry on your family's relationship with God and your family's relationship with the rest of the world. You are, you are sort of the figurehead. You, you become kind of the, the person that everybody goes to in moments of crisis or in, in moments of trying to, like, again, interact with the rest of the world. The person who bears the birthright is the representative of the entire family. So birthright is, the birthright was your destiny. Birthright, it, it was seen as the center of your identity as a human being. So anybody who heard this story in its original context, 
anybody who heard this would have been shocked. This would have been almost absurd. This would have been like cartoonishly weird for someone to have given up their birthright for anything, much less a bowl of lentil soup. So Esau, what's going, so what the story is saying here is Esau has a momentary craving. He has an impulse. He has a reflection, he has a reflexive reaction to something and he trades everything for this one thing that's right in front of him right now at this moment. So for the stories, now if you wanna kind of like take a step back and look at the whole book of Genesis as we've seen it so far, one of the things, if you look at all the stories of Abraham, the central question of the stories of Abraham kind of in, in one way or another kind of revolve around the question, what does it mean to be a blessing to others? The first thing we're told about Abraham is that God tells Abraham, you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to all other people. So that kind of sets up the entire narrative arc of Abraham. And sometimes Abraham does it okay and sometimes he does really bad, but that's kind of the journey of the Abraham story, which is what does it mean to be a blessing to everybody else? So now the stories of Isaac mean almost nothing. Again, Isaac is a fully transitional character. So then we get into the stories of Jacob, Jacob and Esau. And now we're no longer just asking the question about what does it mean to be a blessing? We've added a question. And the new question that we're asking with the Jacob and Esau stories is, who am I? And what is my role in the world? So these two brothers in this moment are having a conversation about birthright and soup. And so it becomes a question about, so who are we? Who am I and what am I doing? And the next few questions about Jacob are all going to kind of center around this central question. Who am I and what is my role in the world? That continues to kind of be like a resounding, and, but, it, but it's, it's framed inside of this larger story, which is about a, a people who are called to be a blessing to everybody else. So what is, what is, in fact, if you just want to fully just connect the two, what is, if you are of the line of Abraham, what is your birthright? From the very first words about Abraham, we're told your descendants will be a blessing to others. If you, if you are of the line of Abraham, you are told, or at least the, the, the original idea was, you will be a blessing to others. Your birthright is to bless others. That is, what, that is your role in the world. So again, to the original hearers, Esau would have been seen as a tragic figure, someone who gave up this story, someone who, who um, surrendered his participation in this particular story. He, he's been handed this beautiful story about blessing and life but he trades it all because he's hungry and he wants some soup. And, but the thing is, it's not really a story about soup at all, is it? Again, like go back to the, the words here, the idea of, well, there's the red, which is what he's asking for, but then there's also humanity and there's also blood, which is symbolic of life. What are we talking about? Esau could have been asking for life. Esau should be, according to the writer, in, in one way or another, through the wordplay, what we're seeing here is when Esau should have been reaching for life and identity and meaning, he's reaching for soup. He's, he has a birthright. He has ha-adam, but he settles for ha-adam. You know, and so again, it's, the, the writer knows what they're doing. They're, they're, using, they're using this sort of interesting kind of wordplay to, to kind of reveal the absurdity of the choice that Esau is making here. He's, he has a calling. He has a destiny. He has a thing that is like in him down to his bones, but he really wants that soup, you know? And so there, there's, this, there's this weird sort of conflict where Esau gives up who he is and who he was meant to be and the story that he's participating in because right now in this moment, that soup, I mean, I like soup. 
I like soup too, but I don't know. I don't. I don't know what I'd be willing to trade for a really good bowl of soup. I don't know how good lentil soup is in the ancient Near East, but I'm I'm sure it's not quite as exciting or, or um, empowering as knowing that you're a part of a larger story. So anyway, it's not really about the soup at all. The soup is symbolic. The soup is is a way of reminding us of the small things that we reach for and trade away the larger parts of our story. So let's fast forward a little bit to the stories of Jesus, because for those of us who follow the way of Jesus, we also have inherited a story. We are the the recipients of a birthright that insists that we are called to be a blessing to the world. We are continuing the story of what does it mean to be a blessing to the people around us? What does it mean to, to show up in the world and make things better? So if you look at the book of John, Jesus kind of reiterates this idea in several different ways. But there, uh, in John chapter 13, verse 34, uh, he says to his followers, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples or my followers. Everyone will know that you're part of the same story that I am if you love one another. And then if you jump over to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, in 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 1, this writer Paul says, If I speak in, to- in the tongues of men or of the angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a, uh, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. What's he saying here? He's saying we are part of a story that is at its core about how we show love to one another. And there are all these other things that we could be doing and participating in, but if love is absent, then we're not really participating in the story that we think we are. We think we have received this birthright, this story that we're a part of, but anytime love is absent, then we were actually just reaching for the soup. So we are in a story that is at its core about showing love for one another, for other people. And when we forfeit that in exchange for anything else, we are reaching for a bowl of soup at the expense of our birthright. Now, what's interesting though, is the concept of birthright implies I am owed something, right? Like anytime people talk about birthright, that's the, the thing that's not being said, sort of the, the, the mental image that we have is an image of, I'm, I am entitled to a thing. A birthright is a thing that someone should give me at some sort of point, at some point, or something that I was born just in possession of, right? Like we, t- I mean, we talk about birthright citizenship. Birthright citizenship means if you're born here, you are an American citizen. That is the reason we, we call that birthright citizenship is because birthright is the idea that when you are born, you possess that thing or that you will at some point possess that thing. That's the whole idea behind birthright. But what's interesting about how the scriptures reframe the concept of birthright is here in these stories, birthright isn't a thing that I'm owed. In the traditions of Abraham and Jesus, birthright is rooted in the question, what do I owe everybody else? Birthright for a Jesus follower, for someone who follows in the tradition of Abraham, for, for, for those of us who find ourselves in this story or trying to participate in the story, birthright is found inside of the question, what do we owe each other? This is, this is the dominant question that's being posed throughout the story. Your birthright The story that you are invited to participate in is an invitation to be a force of love and goodness and kindness and generosity in the world. It's not what you're owed, it's what you owe everybody else. There's lots of data 
right now, and this is this has been an, an ongoing source of discussion and study for I don't know, like probably five or six years at least now. Um, probably longer depending on who you ask. But there's a lot of data out there that shows that people in their 20s and 30s are leaving local church or local, or local churches in, in the United States. And like at, at, a, at an increasingly rising rate that, that people in uh, the, the age bracket of, I think probably most of the people who are, are watching this, um, it, it is not uncommon at all for, for people in, in this age bracket, again, 20s and 30s, to, to say at some point, I'm not participating in churches anymore. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And it's not because they've stopped having some sort of faith. It's not because they've just like lost their, their way or something like that. That's not, that's not the case. In fact, when they're asked, uh, because people are asking, there's lots and lots of studies in which people are, are trying to gather this data and trying to figure out like, why are people right now in this generation, why are people so, so rapidly moving away from this tradition? And these, tra or these traditions, I guess I should say. And when asked, when asked why, the overwhelming answer, and of course, there's not, it's not a monolith, there's lots of different answers, but the most common answer that most people who do this kind of study get is, when, is some version of, I'm tired of watching people, this is what people will say is, I, I am tired of watching people who say that they care about decency and morality and justice trade those things because they want more power or they want more access or they want more money. I, they, they will say, I'm tired of the hypocrisy. I'm tired of watching churches protect abusers because, what, because of what it might cost them to hold abusers accountable. This continues to happen. This happened to somebody that I once had a lot of respect for just a few weeks ago. Churches continue to protect people who are in positions of power, who abuse and hurt people, but they protect them because they're trying to protect their reputation or they're trying to protect their bottom line. And so people are leaving churches and the reason they're giving is, I can't, I can't support organizations that will, that will stand in front of abusers and try and protect them at the expense of the, the well-being of survivors and the other people who, um, who, who trusted them. And so um, people will say, I'm tired of watching church leaders ignore and excuse police brutality and patterns of white supremacy. I'm, I'm tired of, of watching us just pretend like these things don't exist when they really do. So wh what is the core of all these complaints? I'm tired of churches. I'm tired of church leaders being protected when they're abusive. I'm tired of people trading more morality and decency and kindness in exchange for more power. I'm tired of people always wanting more money. I'm tired of white supremacy being sort of protected, ignored, and even sometimes uh, excused. And so, why? Why is that? Why why does that continue to be a thing that people say over and over and over again? Why why is that the thing that people say when they leave these churches? Well, it's because we were invited to be a blessing, and we've traded that calling for a little bit of power, and or a little bit more financial security. Because quite frankly, quite often the best givers are often the people who don't want to hear about the problems. So it's not always the case. But that happens to be the case a lot of the time. And so people, for fear of alienating the, the person who just wrote a really large check, we're just going to stay silent because we don't, want to, we, 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 don't, we don't want to cause any sort of problems with that person because they might take their checkbook when they leave. So, so people are leaving churches and they're saying, like, I'm tired of watching these kinds of things happen over and over and over again. 
what are they saying? We had a calling. We had a birthright. We were part of a story that was so much bigger. That was about, again, grace and love and peace and justice and kindness and goodness. And we traded it for a bowl of soup. We see all over the place churches doing this. And we're surprised that people don't want to be a part of it anymore. I think this story, the story of Esau and soup, I've said soup a lot more than I normally say in, a, in most sermons. But I think the story is calling us or calling out to us. I think the story is, is reaching to us and, and saying, you're, you're better than that. You, you don't have to co-sign cruelty. You don't have to, you, you, you don't have to turn a blind eye to abuse of power and racism. You, you don't have to be this way. You're better than this. You, you don't have to hurt people in the name of protecting your own systems of faith because the story that you're a part of is better than that. The bowl of soup represents anything we reach for that costs us part of ourselves, our humanity, our calling, our ability to live with grace and peace and to be a blessing to other people. So maybe, maybe the bowl of soup is power or status or at least your proximity to power or status. Maybe the bowl of soup is, is, is the thing that you feel like will protect you um, when, when there's a challenge to the system or there's a challenge to other people that you have um, connected yourself with in some sort of way or people that you've trusted. And maybe the bowl of soup is, well, if, if that particular part of the system begins to collapse, then my proximity to it will also lose value. And I can't have that. Well, you, you're better than that. You're called to be better than that. That's a, you're reaching for a bowl of soup when you're invited to have a birthright of goodness and life and grace and peace and love. Maybe the bowl of soup is your to-do list. Maybe the bowl of soup is, again, apologies for all the different times I'm having to say bowl of soup. It's the, it's the metaphor of the day. But maybe it's your to-do list. Maybe it's like, as long as I get these things done, as long as I check off all the things that I, I need to get done, as long as I, I can sort of tell myself that I accomplished some things today, then I will have some sense of like control or peace about things. But in the, in the pursuit of the checklist, quite often what, it, what ends up happening is we sort of like lose ourselves in the minutia and in the process of it. And so we're trying to get all these things done, but things like love and grace and kindness are absent because we're so driven towards finishing our tasks. This is mine, by the way. Um, maybe the bowl of soup is your need to please everybody else. Maybe it is you are, you are breaking yourself open and chipping away parts of yourself because there is a person or a group of people that you are dying to win the approval of. And it is costing you your mental health. It is costing you tons and tons of energy and life that you do not have to spare right now. It is costing you much a dom and you're trading it for a dom. And so, uh, or, or maybe, maybe the bowl of soup is your own need to be right. I mean, there's no way we're seeing that all over the place right now. Uh, may, maybe it's costing you your relationships and your ability to really connect with other people. Maybe, maybe winning the argument and slamming your hand on the table, maybe that's what you're, what, like, maybe that's the end goal for you. But what you've realized is like, people aren't calling you back quite as much. Um, people aren't super eager to get your opinion on things because they know all you're gonna do is shout and belittle and condescend. And so maybe the bowl of soup is just the constant need to win the argument and to be the loudest voice in the room. And what it's costing you is connection and humanity. Maybe because again, 
if, even if I'm right, if I'm loud enough, it's just, it's a loud, if there's no love in the room, then I'm just a, a clanging cymbal. I'm just a loud gong. So, so may, maybe, maybe we, we've just sort of prioritized winning the fight when really what we're being called to do is be a, a presence of love and grace and peace and generosity in the room. Maybe being right is the bowl of soup and we're being invited to so much more than that. You are part of a story. You are invited to be a force for good in the world, to be a blessing to other people. There's so many times when Jesus reaffirms this idea. He talks about, he, he, he sets up a scenario when he says, you visited me when I was in prison and you clothed me when I was naked. And his followers say, we never, when do we ever do that? And he says, just whenever you did that for anybody, whenever you did that for the least of these, that's when you did it for me. What's he saying? He's saying there was a divine presence in the moments when, in which we show kindness. He's saying, this is when you're actually participating in the story. This is when you're actually reaching for your birthright and not just a bowl of soup. You don't have to keep reaching for the bowl. You are invited into a better story than that. You can live a better, more interesting, more beautiful story than that. And if you have found yourself sacrificing things that you know will bring good into the world or excusing darkness and cruelty in exchange for a little bit of security or a little bit of power, you don't have to keep reaching for the soup. You, you, can, you, you can be better than that. We're all invited to be better than that. And things are difficult right now on all sorts of fronts. I could say that any week of 2020 and that, would be to and that would be completely true. Things are difficult for lots of people and understandably so. But we are still invited to not just reach for the soup. We're still invited to, to be people who do our best, whatever that looks like right now, to bring some amount of goodness and kindness and justice into the world. And sometimes that means we start with showing that kind of kindness to ourselves. And sometimes that means just looking for ways to show kindness to the people that we have access to. Um, but whatever that means, um, what we're told is, yeah, the story you're in is a story about being a blessing to others. And sometimes we reach for the soup. And it doesn't just reduce our participation in the story. It diminishes the power of the whole story. The story the story's better with you in it. So may you participate in it. May you reach for something more than a bowl of soup. May you reach for life. May you find that your birthright is found in the question, in what ways can I be a blessing to everybody else? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the invitation to participate in a larger story, to claim our birthright of kindness and goodness and loyalty and justice and goodness and grace and peace. May we, may we find that in the moments when we become less and less of who we were called to be, that we would be reminded that we don't have to keep reaching for the soup. And for those who are afraid right now, for those of us who are struggling, for those of us who are laying awake at night trying to figure out real difficult questions about paying the rent or going to work or sending kids to school or being people who work in a school. We pray for the wisdom and care of the people who, um, who are in positions of leadership and for, for the teachers, for the school administrators, for, for anyone for anyone who is, is part of a system right now and you, you got into this if, and they got into this because they wanted 
to to pour themselves into into the futures of kids may we honor that group of people may we honor the kids that we are entrusted to in our schools may we honor our principals and our teachers may we show them so much grace and peace and love as they attempt to um, to rebuild a thing that feels broken right now again in whatever way we can uh, receive more grace and peace this week than we had last week may it be so in the name of jesus we pray amen